in A.D. 61. The Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. He'd been in prison there because of his faithfulness to the mission of Jesus in the world. Now, if you back up about 10 years, 10 years prior... Paul had met a young man named Epaphras, and Paul had led this young man to faith in Christ and discipled him. And Paul at the time was in a city called Ephesus, planting churches, and Paul sent Epaphras out of the church at Ephesus to go to a neighboring city, a neighboring region, to a city of Colossae. And there in Colossae, Epaphras went, and he took the gospel that Paul had instilled in him, And he went and he planted the gospel in the city of Colossae. People began to come to Christ, and a new church began in Colossae. Now fast forward 10 years to Paul in prison in Rome. Epaphras comes to Paul in prison. He comes with a heavy heart. Because... At the church in Colossae that Epaphras had been sent to plant and to lead, false teachers had come into that church and they had begun to distort and to twist the very gospel that Paul had given his life for, the very gospel that Epaphras had been sent there to plant. They'd begun to twist it. First of all, they'd begun to ever so so slightly twist and distort the teaching about who Jesus is. They began to try to erode the, the teaching that Jesus is God in the flesh. They wanted you to believe he was a good man, a good teacher, but they began to question. And they, they weren't doing it overtly. It was very subtle. It was very behind the scenes. But they were trying to deceive people about who Jesus is and all that he'd accomplished for them. The second area where they begin to try to deceive people is people that had embraced the gospel and become followers of Jesus. They begin to try to raise questions about who they now were in Christ. Because of all that Jesus had done, they were trying to now rob them of their true identity in Christ. If you're going to really attach the false teachers to two words... The false teachers, first of all, were attacking the deity. There's the first word, the deity of Jesus. That Jesus is not just a man or a good teacher, a great spiritual leader. Jesus is 100% God in the flesh. They began to attack that teaching. And then secondly, it's the word identity. They began to try to erode the believer's understanding of who they now were in Christ. So Epaphras leaves Colossae travels for months, hundreds of miles, by foot, by ship, to Rome. He comes to Paul. He says, Paul, let me tell you what's going on in Colossae. And he told him what I just told you. And Paul, in response to what Epaphras had told him about this church, and following the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God while in prison, Paul picked up his quill, and he began to write a letter to that church. Now that letter, you and I now know as the New Testament book of Colossians. But that book was Paul's response to what was going on in Colossae. And that's why you can hang the whole letter 
on two verses in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 really summarize the entire letter of the book of Colossians. I want to put them up on the screen, and I want you to read them out loud with me. Here we go. One, two, three. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Stop right there. You hear what Paul is addressing? He's addressing that issue of the deity of Jesus. And he said, as he writes this letter, I want you to understand something. Paul said, everything that God is, Jesus is with skin on. That's what Paul writes to them. And if you study the book of Colossians, the whole first two chapters leading up to this verse... Paul, in the book of Colossians, is laying that foundation. The whole first chapter and a half is Paul teaching us all about who Jesus is as God in the flesh and all that he's accomplished for us. But look at the next half of the verse. It says, read it with me, And in him you have been made, what? complete. Now he's addressing the issue of identity. Not just who Jesus is, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, but identity. You now, because of him and in him, have been made complete. You hear how Paul is writing this letter in response to what's going on there, and he's addressing these two very issues? That's the whole book of Colossians. From these verses to the end of the book of Colossians, Paul is teaching us about who we now are because of who Jesus is. So for the last year, as a church family, we have been walking through verse by verse this New Testament letter to the church at Colossae. We've just verse by verse walked through. We've unpacked all this truth about who Jesus is. And we've unpacked all this truth about who we now are because of who Jesus is. And this weekend, we bring the book of Colossians to a close. In the last chapter of the book of Colossians, over the last few weekends, we've been looking at a series we simply entitled Marks of Maturity. When Paul gets to the end of this letter, Paul begins to give us some characteristics of what it looks like for us to live mature in our relationship with Jesus. Often we confuse the idea of spiritual maturity. We think spiritual maturity is somebody who's been saved a really, 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 really long time. For example, somebody's been a Christian for 35 years. Oh, they are very spiritually mature. They've been saved for 35 years. Well, guess what? I know some people who've been saved three weeks who sometimes are more spiritually mature than some people who say they've been saved for 35 years. Spiritual maturity is not just the length of time that you've been in the faith. Spiritual maturity is not just being able to answer all the Bible trivia questions, right? Somebody says, oh, that person's very spiritually mature. You got any question in the Bible, you can go to them and they can answer it. They are mature. Well, listen, I don't think they're going to have that contest in heaven, all right? And I go have the Bible trivia contest in heaven. You get no brownie points for that. That is not what spiritual maturity looks like. And Paul begins to give us some glimpses into what it looks like. Now, so far, we've given you over the last three weekends seven marks of maturity. I want to list them up on the screen so you can see the seven we've already covered. Here they are. A desperate pursuit of God in prayer. A passion for living on mission with God daily. A faithfulness that serves Christ and others a humility that makes wrongs right, 
a devotion that sacrifices everything for the cause of Christ, an understanding that the kingdom of God is bigger than me and my church, and a spirit that encourages others. Now, that's only the first seven. We're going to finish them this morning. But just looking at the first seven, I want you to think about those things. Paul is describing maturity in Christ. And I'm afraid that oftentimes in the church, we walk around with this pseudo-spirituality idea that we're something because maybe we've been around for a while or we know some biblical facts. But that's a whole different measuring stick right there for what real spiritual maturity looks like. Now, with each of those statements, what we've been giving you are some application questions. And here's why we've been doing that. Tomorrow morning on our website, you're going to be able to go to our website, hopechurchonline.com. And if you haven't been here over the last three weekends, you can go back and watch these messages to catch up and learn these principles. If you have been here... In the morning, on our website, we're going to put a link to a PDF file that will have all of these statements, plus the ones we're going to give you today, and all of the application questions. Let me tell you why we're doing that. I don't want you to just hear some sermons. I want you to interact with the Word. And I want you to let the Holy Spirit of God speak into your life. So we're going to give you these statements, we're going to give you these application questions, and I want you as a part of your devotional life to get real honest with God. To ask some real hard questions about where you are spiritually and what God is doing in your life, where He's working in your life. So that's going to be available in the morning when you go to our website, hopechurchonline.com. Now, this morning, we're going to finish the chapter. If you got your Bible, open to Colossians chapter 4. Now, what Paul has done here at the end is he started listing some people by name. Now, some of us, when we get to the last chapter of one of Paul's letters and he starts mentioning all these names that sound like diseases that you can catch, you know, we get to the end here with all these names and we kind of think, well, he's done. Let's move on to the next letter, right? Let's move on to the next Bible book. He's just doing the salutation now, so I'm skipping over all that. Well, there's a lot of great truth in these names. So let's pick it up in verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who I just told you about, is one of your number. A bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify of him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. In the closing words of this little letter, Paul mentions a few of his friends. And he's giving us some examples of what maturity looks like 
in the everyday life of believers. And I want to give you four more of these marks of maturity this morning, and then I want to close with a final word that will kind of wrap this series up. Here's the first one. When we are walking in maturity, there is a burden for the spiritual maturity of others. When we are maturing in Christ, we begin to develop a burden for the spiritual maturity of other Christians. Listen to the two phrases Paul uses to describe Epaphras. Number one, he says he is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. The word labor here is a word that, it's a Greek word, agonizomai. We get an English word from it. We get the word agony. It's a word that they use to describe an athlete who is competing in the games, who is straining with every ounce of energy all the way to the finish line. Even when he got to the end, he's he's reaching with everything he has to cross the goal. There's an, an agony and a labor and a strenuousness with which Epaphras is praying for these Christians. And then the second phrase is that phrase in verse number 13. He says he has a deep concern for you. That phrase, deep concern, is a labor that demands the whole strength of a man. Here's the only way to describe it. Epaphras was burdened for these believers. We tend to have some burden, some agony, but it's usually about... Stuff going on in our own world. Lose my job, guess what? I'm agonizing. (laughs) I'm praying, God, I need a job. And I'm not just praying. I'm getting everybody else to pray, right? Let me get that diagnosis of some illness in my family, and all of a sudden I'm agonizing. I'm praying. I'm consumed. Let there be some obstacle or difficulty or challenge in my life. And all of a sudden, man, I'm agonizing in prayer, but... What Paul is saying is, that's not wrong. We should pray for all those things. But if that's all we pray about, we're really immature. Because we're just consumed with ourselves. And Paul is giving us an example of Epaphras who labored. He agonized in prayer over other Christians. Well, what was he what was he burdened for? Well, look what it says in, in verse 12. It says, he was burdened that they may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That phrase, stand perfect, is the same word that Paul used. It means complete or mature. He's praying for their spiritual maturity, that they would be fully assured in all of the will of God. It means convinced of what God desires for them. And it's interesting. Both of those phrases, stand perfect and fully assured, are in the passive voice in the original language. You say, why is that important? That sounds boring. Why is that a big deal? Well, here's why it's a big deal. If it's in the active voice, it means he was praying for something they were supposed to do. The active voice means that the subject is doing the action. So if he'd been burdened for their spiritual maturity and prayed in the active voice, here's what he would have been praying. God, I pray for them that they would do better. God, I pray for them that they would be more faithful. God, I pray for them that they would accomplish the will of God. Lord, I pray for them that they would do this. But it wasn't in the active voice. It was in the passive voice. When something's in the passive voice... The subject isn't doing the action. The subject is receiving the action. Here's why that's so awesome. What he's really praying is not about what they're supposed to do. He's praying about what Christ desires to do in and through them. You see it? He's not praying that they would be faithful. He's praying that Christ 
would be faithful in them. He's not praying that they would mature. He's praying that Christ would produce maturity in them. He's burdened for them that they would grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and be fully convinced of that and then understand and be fully convinced of who they are in Christ and out of the overflow of that that they would let Christ manifest His very life in and through them. Let me give you a moment of personal confession. As your pastor and the other pastors on this team, you know what the greatest burden is that we have for you? The thing that we pray for you the thing that we agonize, why we spend 15 or 20 hours a week laboring over a text of Scripture so that we can unpack. Why do we do that? Because we are burdened and we pray for you that you will understand who Jesus is and you will be filled up to the fullness of who Jesus is and then you would understand who you are in Christ and begin to live out of the freedom and the joy and the abundance and the satisfaction that can only be found in Christ. Listen, our church can't change your life. This preacher can't change your life. Your small group leader can't change your life. But listen to me, Jesus Christ can and will change your life. The burden that we have for you is exactly what Epaphras prayed right here. That you would allow Christ in you to conform you to his image and manifest his very life through you out of the overflow of intimate fellowship with him. With each of these, we're giving you an application question. Here's the application question I want to give you for this first one. Are you burdened for the spiritual maturity of others? I want you to think about that. Let me give you two ways you can Put that question to test in your life. Number one, how much time do you spend praying for the spiritual maturity of others? I mean, that's exactly what Paul is showing us here. Here's a man who was so burdened, he prayed. I want you to think about your prayer life. How much of your prayer life is consumed with you and how much of your prayer life is consumed with praying for the maturity of other believers in Christ. Let me give you a second way to test this question. How much time do you spend investing, or excuse me, how much time do you invest helping others to mature spiritually? How much time do you invest helping others mature spiritually? You know what that is? It's a mark of maturity. Mature disciples, guess what? They reproduce disciples. How do you do that? How do you invest time helping other people mature spiritually? Let me tell you one way you do that, by being a part of a small group. Well, why do we encourage small groups here at Hope? Because it's in the context of small groups that we encourage and invest in each other to grow spiritually. Listen, if you're somebody who says, well, I, I'm just too busy to be in a small group, can I tell you what you're really saying? I'm really an immature Christian. I'd like to come to church on the weekend, get my shot that's just for me, get what I need to pick me up, and I'd like the rest of the week to be about me. When we begin to grow in Christ, 
we begin to mature in Christ, we have a passion to begin to invest in the lives of other people spiritually. That's a very different paradigm than knowing some Bible facts and being around the church for a long time to determine who's spiritually mature. I'm to be investing. How many people are you pouring your life into? Who can you look back over the last five years and you can say that person is walking closer with Jesus because I have invested time in them? Paul says it's a mark of maturity that I begin to invest in the lives of others. Let me give you a second one. An awareness that God works through my work. When I'm maturing in Christ, there's an awareness that God works through my work. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Look back in the text at verse 14. Look what he says. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Now, that's all Paul tells us here about Luke. Luke, the beloved physician. Now, you might think that doesn't tell us very much, but in reality, it tells us a lot about Luke because of what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Luke, the pastor. He doesn't say, Luke, the preacher. He doesn't say, Luke, the missionary. He doesn't say, Luke, the seminary professor. He doesn't say, Luke, the theologian. He doesn't even say, Luke, the seminary student. He says, Luke, the beloved physician. Tells us two things about Luke. He was a doctor, and he was loved as a doctor. Scholars tell us that the profession of medicine in many ways had been perfected by the Greeks. There's still many of the symbols and terms from the Greek culture that we use in the practice of medicine today. In Paul's day, because of the growth of the medical community, physicians were held in incredibly high esteem. So if you were a physician, you were a part of one of the most esteemed professions in your community. But Luke, it doesn't just say was a physician. It says Luke was a loved physician. It means that people loved the way that Luke carried out his profession. They loved the way that Luke served them. They loved the way that Luke prescribed care and his bedside manner. Luke was a great loved doctor. Here's what that tells me about Luke. Luke had it made Luke could have stayed right in his hometown, practicing medicine at the pinnacle of his career in one of the most esteemed professions in his culture. And yet, listen to what Warren Wearsby said about Luke. Luke was a glowing example of the professional man who uses his skills in the service of the Lord and gives himself to go wherever God sends. You see, Luke understood something. Luke understood that his profession was not the goal. His profession was not the end. His profession was a platform given to him by God to be used for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. As believers, we tend to compartmentalize our lives. We say, I've got my work life over here, you know, my career path, my job, my skills. I got my family life over here. 
my wife, my kids, my parents, my brothers, my sisters. Got my spiritual life, my church, my relationship with God, my small group. Got my social life, my friends, my hanging out. Got my recreation and hobbies and all that good stuff I enjoy over here. All these different compartments in our lives. And what we've failed to understand is that all that's not meant to be compartmentalized. I'm not to make decisions about my career in isolation from my relationship with God. Everything falls under my relationship with God and my work life, my family life, my social life, my recreation life. All of those are gifts that God's given me to be used for His glory. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We all know that verse. Look what it says on the screen. And we know that God causes, what does it say? All things. Now, typically when we read this verse, we're talking about all things like all the bad stuff, all the difficult things in our lives. And we look to this verse to find great encouragement. God causes all things to work together for good. That means for our best, to those who are called according to His purposes. God's working all things, but all things also includes my job, my hobbies, my career path. I I watch people sometimes make decisions concerning their career. I mean, how many of you, and I don't want you to raise your hand, I'm not looking for that, but as a pastor, nobody expects the pastor to take a new job just because it's a bigger church and offers more money, right? I mean, that's not the way the pastor is supposed to make his decisions, right? I mean, he shouldn't just go to a bigger church because there's more money and more opportunity there, right? No, that would be ungodly for a pastor to make his decisions. Listen, did you know there's no different in my job and yours? My job is a platform God's given me to be used for his purpose to accomplish his glory. Yours is the same way. You shouldn't take another job just because it's a promotion and more money. Did you know that God gave you your job not just for you to plan retirement? God gave you your job as a platform to be used on mission with Him to engage this city and the world for His glory. And you know when you should change jobs? When God speaks to you through your devotional time and says, Hey, it's time to change jobs. Sometimes it may be for a promotion. Sometimes it may not be. I was pastoring... In Tennessee, a large church, as associate pastor of a large church that everybody said I'd be the next pastor of, and I was getting offers from bigger churches. And God interrupted our life and said, We want you, want you to go to Las Vegas and plant a church in your home with 18 adults in your living room. Listen, my friend said, Hey, that's not a good career move. <laughs> but when we understand that God's at work through our work, Whatever you are, a doctor, a teacher, a construction worker, a homemaker, whatever your career, an engineer, God desires to use your vocation for His glory. Let me show you a quote by a good friend of mine, Bob Roberts, great pastor in Dallas. Our new uh, pastor on our team, Brian Hook, comes from the church where Bob is pastor. Listen to what Bob said. There are countries in the world you can't go as a missionary, but you can go. As a business person, a doctor, a teacher, a humanitarian, and a thousand other things that help that country. Has it ever dawned on you that God gave you the skill and job that you have 
because it was going to be the thing that opened a door to the gospel on the other side of the world that a people that have never had access to the gospel before could hear the gospel. Did you know that there are places in the world that it's easier for you to get into than me? I mean, they see my resume, seminary graduate, pastor, preacher of the gospel, and they're like, uh, no, thank you. We don't want what you offer. But they see you as a teacher or a doctor, a lawyer, a business person, a construction worker, and your skill adds value in their mind. And you're able to go and get into those countries, and as you live your life, as you serve those people, share Christ in ways that I would never have the opportunity to. When we begin to mature in our walk with Jesus, we understand that our, our work, God's at work through our work. So here's the question I want you to think about. Are you intentional about using your work as a platform for God's glory? Have you surrendered your career path to God? Let me give you a third mark of maturity. It's a generosity with the things God has entrusted to me. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 15. It says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. That was a, a, a town about 10 miles away from Colossae. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Did you know it wasn't until the third century that churches began to build buildings and facilities to gather and worship in? For almost 300 years, the church existed without facilities. It's exploding and <coughs> growing and meeting predominantly in homes. But the people that would offer their homes to be used for the church were people that lived generously because there was great sacrifice in doing so. When you put your house up and said, hey, you can meet the church here, you put a, a target on your life and on your home because this is a time when the church was facing great persecution. This is a time when people could lose their life. I mean, Paul wrote this from prison, let us not forget. And yet the Bible tells us about this woman that she lived with everything that she had on her fingertips, holding it loosely, ready to make a difference in the lives of other people. It didn't matter what it cost her. It didn't matter what sacrifice she had to make. She used what she had for the glory of God. Let me give you three principles. I'm just going to mention them. We're not going to spend time on them, but three principles that govern how or should shape our perspective towards material things in the world. Number one, it all belongs to him. Number two, he's entrusted some to me. Number three, what he's entrusted to me, I am to use for him. Read those with me. Number one, it all belongs to him. Number two, he's entrusted some to me. Number three, what he's entrusted to me, I am to use for him. Here's what Nympha said. It's not my house, it's his house. If he wants to use his house for his church, why is that my business? She held it loosely, ready to make a difference in other people's lives. Now, what is the link between this generous attitude and spiritual maturity? <laughs> you do realize that generosity is the core of the gospel. You remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he, what's the next word? Gave his only begotten son. Right? The gospel, the core of the message of the gospel is generosity. And the reality is you and I are never more like Jesus than when we're giving. 
Let me show you the verse we looked at last weekend in Mark chapter 10. Look what it says on the screen. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to, what does it say? Give. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve, and I came to give. So here's the point. Generosity is who Jesus is. And if the Christian life is not me living for Jesus, but me allowing Jesus to live his life in and through me, as I let Jesus live through me, guess what that produces in me? Generosity. So if I have a generosity problem in my life, i got a spiritual maturity problem in my life. I've got a Christ in me problem in my life. Does that make sense? So here's the question I want you to think about with this one. Are you living generously with what God has entrusted to you? Do you invest sacrificially in God's work through your local church? If you're a part of this fellowship, that question is for here. If you're a part of another fellowship, that question is for there. Do you live generously and do you invest? What Paul is showing us here is that's a mark of maturity as we walk with Jesus. Let me give you a fourth one. A willingness to receive input from others. A willingness to receive input from others. Look at verse 17. He says, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, something very interesting happens here, and I want you to get this picture, all right? Epaphras travels all the way to Rome, tells Paul what's going on, Paul writes this letter, gives it to Epaphras. Epaphras comes all the way back. The trip alone, there and back, probably takes him about a year just to get there and back. So by the time he gets back, everybody's excited. Man, they are pumped in Colossae. Words begun to spread. Epaphras is back. And not only is Epaphras back, he got a letter from Paul. Man, we got it. So everybody gets together. You can imagine. They, they, they believe that the church in Colossae met in Philemon's house. So Philemon opens the doors. Everybody comes. They're packed in there. It's standing room only. Epaphras gets up to read the letter, and he starts reading this letter that we've been studying for a year. When he gets to the end of the letter, the next to last verse, the letter says, Say to Archippus. Now, all the other people that he'd mentioned were either with him or he was sending greetings to him. But do you hear what he did there? He just singled a guy out in the crowd. It'd be like me up here preaching and going, uh, Hey, uh, Mickey, I got something I want to say right here to you today, all right? I got a word from God for you right here today. Everybody's going, thank God I didn't sit on the front row. Amen? So, Mickey, I got a word. I'm just going to talk. I know everybody else is here, but I'm going to talk to you right now. Now, what's happened right now? Everybody's looking at Mickey, right? That's exactly what happened in Colossae. You imagine he's reading this letter, and he says, say to Archippus. All eyes are now on Archippus. And then he gives him this challenge. Take heed. Let me tell you what that tells us about Archippus. Paul knew that Archippus was so mature, he could single him out and speak directly to him. And Archippus had the humility to receive it. Paul knew he didn't have to worry about offending him. He didn't have to worry about making him uncomfortable. He knew that he was such a man of humility 
that he could single him out of the crowd like I just did Mickey. He could single him out of the crowd and he'd receive what he had to say. Here's what Paul's telling us. When there's maturity, there's a level of teachability. There's a willingness to receive input from other people. Let me ask you a question. Are you teachable? You think you got it all figured out? You think you're too spiritually mature for somebody to come tell you something? You think you've been living this thing too long to receive that counsel from somebody else? For over 20 years of my life, I've had a practice, a spiritual discipline that somebody taught me. For 20, over 20 years of my life, I've tried, hadn't been perfect, but I've tried every day to read the proverb that corresponds to the day of the month. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. There are roughly 30 days in almost every month, 30, 31 days. So with every day of the month, I try to read the proverb that corresponds with the day of the month. And they taught me to do that because there's so much wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Well, after over 20 years of doing that, the single biggest life-changing lesson I've ever learned from the book of Proverbs, I wrote it down in a statement. I'm going to put it on the screen. Wisdom always seeks counsel from others because my input is never enough and my perspective is always limited. It's exactly what God wrote to us in Proverbs. Look at chapter 12, verse 15. Look what it says. The way of a, what does it say? Fool is right in his own eyes. You think you're right all the time? Well, let me tell you what God says about that. Fool. Now, that's when I'm glad I'm just the delivery boy and I'm not the editor, right? I didn't write this. I didn't say that. God did. He said, if you think you're right all the time, that's foolish. But look what he goes on to say. Put it back up there. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You see, Paul knew about Archippus that he could single him out and he would listen. He would hear what Paul had to say. So here's the application question. Are you teachable? You think you got some spiritual truth figured out to the point that nobody can teach you anything? Are you, do you humbly seek others' input in your life? And when they speak, do you listen? Do you have ears to hear what they have to say? Let me tell you what it is. It's a mark of spiritual maturity. You see, when we're immature, we try to put off this vibe that we know everything and we got it all figured out. Hey, the more you walk with Jesus, the more you realize you ain't got it figured out. And you need input from other people. Now, if you've been following along closely, which some of you maybe have, and you're thinking right now, oh, Pastor Vance, you skipped over somebody. There's a name in here that you, you skipped over. If you're following along closely, you know that I skipped a name in verse 15. I want, or excuse me, verse 14. I want to put that verse back up on the screen. And I want you to look what it says. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. We skipped right over that one. 
Why did we skip over that one? Well, because he didn't say anything about him. He's just, and also, right? I mean, that's not very much. Well, you might not think it's very much, but is your name in the Bible? (laughs) Mine's not. I mean, that's a pretty good list to be on, right? That's a big deal. When your name gets mentioned in the book, that's a big deal. So, So here's what the little and also Demas tells us about Demas. There was a point in his life he was a part of Paul's team. He was on mission with Paul. He was being used of God. He, he writes here and he sends greetings from Demas back to the church at Colossae. He's telling us that he was a co-laborer in the gospel. But at some point, something changed. Because Paul, in his very last letter, Paul's in his second imprisonment in Rome. And at the end of this imprisonment, they're going to execute Paul. He's going to die. Paul's going to be put to death for the gospel. And just before his execution, Paul sits down and he writes one final letter to one man named Timothy. It's called, we call it the book of 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want you to listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, make every effort to come to me soon. You hear in his voice, he knows he's at the end. Timothy, come soon. I'm not long for this world. But then look what he says. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It was a point in Paul's ministry where it was and also Demas. And at the end, apparently Demas, because he's mentioned right there with Luke, he's probably some kind of a business professional who had joined in what God was doing in Paul's life and become a part of the team. But somewhere, somewhere along the way, the lure of the things in the world I don't know if it was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Somewhere along the way, it grabbed Demas' attention again. And he deserted Paul. So here's the final word about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not a position you achieve. It's a person you pursue. You see, yesterday's grace is not sufficient for today's battle. If you're trying to live out of the maturity of yesterday, you are headed down the same road that Demas walked down. You see, Demas thought he'd arrive. I mean, my gosh, he's with Paul. He's mentioned in the Bible. He'd made it. Sometimes as Christians, we think we've arrived. And we've made it. I'm now mature in my faith. And Paul puts Demas in the Bible. And I'm so glad he did. I, I hate it for Demas. But I'm glad for us. 
because Demas serves as a warning that spiritual maturity is not a level that you reach. It's a love relationship that you must continue in. I'm not saying that Demas lost his salvation. That's not at all why. Demas was a Christian. He loved the Lord. But let me tell you what he lost. He lost his platform for effectiveness in the kingdom of God. And then Paul, after mentioning those things, writes these words. Grace be with you. And he lays down his quill and the book of Colossians comes to an end.